Impact over intentions. A faculty member told me I was brave for admitting I was the first in my family to go to college. I don't understand brave why Brave and common. I spent my whole life having to ask permission to celebrate my holidays. As a college student, I often felt that I needed to justify how religious I was in order to have the luxury to have the day off on my major holidays, something that no one is expected to do for majority group holidays Invisible like Invisible and nebulous. When the moving truck showed up at our new home in Davidson, an older white woman with a child in a stroller stopped, waited for us to come back outside from inside the house, and barked at us without so much as a simple hello, moving out or moving in. I have control over when my class does and doesn't meet, but in class, my job becomes harder for I had a professor say that she could tell English was my first language from my essay. A black man walked into our campus office. Another student worked and greeted him and said, Are you the new football coach? You could see on his face he just wanted to sigh. He said, No, I'm a new professor. Today, we were made aware of our hypervisibility and undesirability. We are here to put the microscope to the microphone with our podcast. So let's talk about microaggressions. The term microaggressions was first coined by African-American psychiatrist and Harvard professor Chester Middlebrook Pierce, who defined microaggressions as a subtle, standing, and often automatic and nonverbal put-downs directed towards people of color, often unconsciously. According to Daryl Wing Sue and Lisa Beth Sponierman in the 2020 second edition of their book, Microaggressions in Everyday Life, while early theorizing focused solely on racial microaggressions, they can be expressed toward any marginalized group member and are typically linked to racism, sexism, genderism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism. The study of microaggressions has expanded recently to include other forms of oppression and accompanying microaggressions such as transgender, queer, religious, and intersectional microaggressions. Micro refers to the interpersonal, micro-level context of the act, and aggressions refers to the insults, invalidations, and assaults that may manifest as verbal or non-verbal behaviors that cause indirect, social, and relational forms of harm, such as exclusion with or without intentions to do so. I once overheard a conversation in which a white man wondered aloud about the role and place of white men in academia as the future unfolds. I thought to myself, seriously? You are not a minority or an endangered species. You are not outnumbered or even close to being outnumbered. You still make upwards of 70% of the professoriate. Not only that, but whiteness is embedded in our systems and institutions. It's so normalized that you don't even see it. Microaggressions are verbal and nonverbal interpersonal exchanges in which a perpetrator causes harm to a target, whether intended or unintended. These brief and commonplace indignities communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative slights to the target. Microaggressions value the target's perception and identifying harm, as perpetrators often are unaware that they've engaged in an exchange that demeans the target. Impact over intentions. So let's get started. So we'll go ahead and start with the first question. If you both want to introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, your path to where you are now, and then also what's led you to anthropology. I am Helen Cho, and I have been teaching at Davidson College since 2002. So it's been 17 years already, and I found anthropology my freshman year fall semester, and I absolutely fell in love with Anthro 101. Something just clicked in my head. I switched my major three times 
And while I was switching from bioengineering to biochemistry to finally chemistry, I had kept up with all of these anthropology classes. So that's how I discovered anthropology. And I was especially fascinated with the human skeleton. So I teach all of the biological anthropology classes at Davidson. Hi, my name is Larian Bowles. I haven't been at Davidson quite nearly as long, but I have been teaching for a very long time, probably since about 2005, but I came to Davidson in 2013. What brought me to anthropology was not my undergraduate experience, and I always enjoy telling this story to students. I took, I was a journalism and African and African American studies major in undergrad, and I was always interested in the human story, but I really thought that I would be like Christiana Amanpour and like work for CNN and be this international correspondent. And I took one anthropology class in undergrad and I thought it was terrible. I didn't enjoy it. It's my cautionary tale about how not to teach or deliver an intro class, if you will. And I actually discovered anthropology kind of by happenstance when I was thinking about graduate schools and I was visiting some friends in London and the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, really problematic name I know, but SOAS was having an open house about their new graduate program in anthropology of media. And I didn't really know what that was. And you know, I kind of found my way to anthropology from being interested in media and journalism, mass comm and communications. And so I ended up in that graduate program and then fell in love with anthropology, sociocultural anthropology, and then continued on to a PhD. And I realized that it's still the same interest because I'm always fascinated by the human story and human interactions. And so whether or not it's journalism or anthropology, I still think that I'm very much committed to the process of storytelling. So yeah, that's my story. Awesome. Thank you. Within your courses, which ones are your favorite to teach? And how does racism, otherisms, and systemic marginalization factor into these different classes and into your work? I don't have a favorite. I think I could divide my courses into two groups. So one group would be courses like forensic anthropology, bioarchaeology and human osteology that directly relate to my research and my graduate training. So those courses deal with topics that I'm most familiar with. And then the other group of courses were developed in response to student interest or maybe not enough of those kinds of courses in the Davidson curriculum, as well as the kind of trends that we see across liberal arts colleges, as well as just across the nation. So those would be classes like the traditional Asian medical systems, as well as monkeys, apes, humans, and courses that I don't have expertise in. I think designing a course is probably the best way to really learn something. So those are kind of um, how I divide my classes. In terms of the racism and the other isms, how that factors into my work. In terms of the course content, the racism plays a significant role because my discipline 
actually emerged out of this invention of race around the 18th century, as well as the proliferation of what we now call scientific racism using our 21st century lenses. My discipline really did get spawned from that, and I do witness a continuation of racist science just in the 21st century form. They are directly relevant, so in my courses I do integrate the past as well as the present forms of scientific racism. In terms of how it factors into my work also would be the experience of racism, not just myself, but the students as well. And I think because of the nature of anthropology, we do have pretty diverse groups of majors and minors, and they always have unfortunate and really unpleasant experiences that they share either in class, in class context, or sometimes during office hours. And I myself too obviously experience racism both on campus, off campus, within my profession, etc. So everything that you're saying, Helen, reminds me of what kind of guides me in terms of how I'm teaching. So Like Dr. Cho, I don't necessarily have a favorite course that I teach. I do have different things that I enjoy about the variety of courses that I teach. So I teach quite a few courses in anthropology. I also teach courses in Africana studies. I also teach courses that fulfill major requirements in gender and sexuality studies as well. And one of the things that I think is a thread that runs through my courses are a focus on what anthropologists talk about as the structural violence and what we mean about that or how do systems, institutions of oppression function across lines of like race, class, gender, sexuality. People like to talk about it a lot now in terms of this notion of intersectionality. And while that is true, I think that sometimes we've come to a point with the literature around it. It's like, yes, you have a lot of identities that inform the way in which you experience structural violences like racism, sexism, heteronormativity, ableism, etc. And so I think I really try to focus on those issues of systems. You know, how do those systems become operationalized in day-to-day experiences? How do they function in micro-contexts like microaggressions, you know, those kinds of things? Because sometimes you talk about the very individual experience and then sometimes you can think about policies and structures. But the space in between those, you know, what are the micro contexts? What are the daily contexts? What are the somatic experiences of all of these isms that you've mentioned? They often become so individuated that it takes our attention away of the systemic aspects of those processes and how those processes become reinforced, reaffirmed, et cetera. So when I'm thinking about my own work, most of my research focuses on women on the African continent and also in the diaspora and their experiences of migration, you know, nationally as well as transnationally. You know, all of those things bear resonances because I do believe that we are living in an era of global white supremacy. So whether or not that's happened to African women or African descendant women or whether it's happening to diverse types of bodies and forms, et cetera, et cetera, I think that they are fundamentally a part of my work because they're fundamentally a part of my experience and how I walk in the world. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I just 
have my courses divided into whether it's within my expertise or something outside of it. One course that I would consider the most important one that I offer would be debunking race for the same reasons that Dr. Bowles stated that it is part of my personal life. It is relevant to my discipline. The experiences are seen writ small on campus, writ large across the nation and the globe. I do consider it to be almost like an obligation that it be offered on a regular basis. And I do consider that to be pretty exhausting, emotionally exhausting, but a very, very important course that I feel like I should offer it on a more regular basis. And most of the course content is on scientific racism. And like what Dr. Bull said, to not rob the context of a particular racist incident or racist science, I do bring up incidences, examples from Davidson College and then embed that within a wider context, whether it's national or something historical. Since you mentioned that, so, you know, I think that we both teach courses that pair really well together. And if I had my way, students across campus would take both of those courses in the same year. So whether it's your debunking race course or my course titled Racism, which really talks about those kind of sociocultural factors. So how do we dig into the notion of like, oh, I think things have changed generationally and things are getting better. You know, how do we create a richer context and some depth to that idea? And so how are things different? How are things different better? How are things different worse? How do we even decide what better is? What is the contour and context for our decision-making around that? So I think both of those courses speak specifically to the context of this conversation that we're having right now are absolutely essential and really speak to the broader kind of aspiration of what we think anthropology is capable of and what anthropologists do in ways that are not highly visible. Because when we talk about culture, we're thinking about just the, oh, how do people eat? How do people sleep? How do people get married? What are the customs? And so we get into that. But anthropology is also so much about the whole history of human beings and social organization and equality, equity, and also systems of inequality and equity that human beings have recycled, remanufactured, and and remade, and, and all the revolutions and rebellions against that as well. So, you know, I think that that's part of why it's hard for us to have a favorite, because they're all part of the fabric of what constitutes what it means to be human. Thank you both for that. So the next question we want to go into is some ways relating to what you've already said about the atmosphere at Davidson. But if you could talk about what the realities are, the impacts of microaggressions, specifically at Davidson, or personal experiences? So the term microaggression, it became really popular on college campuses across the nation, I would say like in the last maybe 10 years or something like that, because I remember I had never heard that term before. And now, obviously, it's a word that is heard often, used often. In a way, I feel that the language allows people to express this kind of really unpleasant feeling or just this kind of like irksome memory or experience without using maybe burdensome huge huge words like racism i do consider microaggression to be racism 
But I also know that depending on the circumstances and depending on the situation, there are times when microaggression is more apt of a word. I definitely do consider microaggressions to be examples, very, very small examples of racism or sexism or any of these kinds of structural inequities. In terms of my personal experience with microaggressions, yes, I definitely have my share of them. And one of the things that I would actually advise any person of color who is just not maybe as experienced in putting words to certain kinds of slights and sentiments and things like that, just the rule of thumb that I use personally is if just something left a bad taste in my mouth or I'm actually pausing and I'm just kind of questioning well, was that a slight or was that a diss? Just a second, something like that comes to mind. I know what it is and I just say, yep, that was definitely an experience of microaggression. To me, that's really important because the thing about being microaggressed for something visible like my race, if it happens on a regular basis, it sure does deplete mental energy, of which I think we all have a finite amount. So I think it is important to recognize what it is, name it, and then just kind of know that there are terms, there's literature, there's scholars who do study microaggressions. But again, like I consider microaggressions really to be part of systemic racism. I agree wholeheartedly about how it is a functioning arm of systemic racism. And also, I think the reality of that impact is that in this way that it also becomes a space for solidarity and community with other people who share those experiences. So when you name a thing or you name an experience or you name an experience like some that I've had where people question whether or not I am a faculty member on campus. People question whether or not I belong in a particular space. The fact that so many people of color talk about having that particular experience, it can be an affirmation in some ways to understanding that feeling that you have where you're like, okay, well, this is not intentional, but intent doesn't mean that I'm not having a consequential affective response to it where my body tenses up or I feel a sense of like erasure or unbelonging in that moment. So yes, this is the place that I work. This is the place that I teach. This is the place where I educate students. This is the place where I do a lot of writing around the various research projects that I work on. But even though it's very much a part of who I am as a person, there's always this frequent and regularized experiences, conversations, moments and interactions that stress a sense of erasure of my role as an educator that create a sense of unbelonging around my work as a scholar. You know, so it creates community because you have this shared experience in the face of oppression. But then it also creates another level of emotional labor because you also, when you're in community, want to engage in care for that community, you know, in terms of responding to those shared experiences as well. So the reality of it is that we often talk about it in various circles as like, the Black tax or the Asian tax or the Latinx tax of what it means to be the only or to be a few, one of few people in a particular space is that you now become an important 
advocate and community member and doing the kind of emotional labor for people who have to confront those experiences that other people don't have to do or other people don't see as their responsibility to do because those types of microaggressions didn't happen to them. And so the reality of that impact is I think you spend a lot more time in emotional labor. You have to be almost aggressive in your goal to engage in self-care and to care for yourself because there's so much going on all the time. And we see that going on in the news right now. And it doesn't matter when this even broadcasts, because even if I say there's so much going on in the news right now, that could be a month ago. It could be a month from now because it is just endemic within our society. And so that just becomes a part of the burden that you carry, you know, as a person of color and or a marginalized person to deal with those things. So it has a somatic, intellectual, social impact that can be really deleterious, but it also puts you in community that can be really affirming and sustaining as you try to work through those things and live through those things. Actually, as I was listening to Dr. Bowles, I was thinking about the introduction and then just this really common usage of microaggression in our conversations and just between faculty, between students and between faculty and students. And I would say that I guess the benefit of having a term like microaggression is that it definitely does make it more palatable for white people to hear, which is good. And I also understand that it is catering to their white fragility. But again, the flip side is at least we are talking about it. Although it's not a preferred term for me, at least I get to call it out by not using a really, really horrendous word like racist. The intention part doesn't really sit well with me, if anything, I think someone coming up with the explanation of the intention, that's the part that really gets me more upset, more affected than the actual act of microaggression. We actually talked a lot about that, especially after like the pictures were posted and shared through social media last Halloween season about intention impact and everything that embodies that. I guess you guys kind of started going into how microaggressions are racism and sometimes microaggressions gives people a way to unite can you guys address how you when microaggressions occur how you guys respond to them both as microaggressor and a microaggressee i think to jump into that so as a person who has of course like so many others committed microaggressive acts they're ones that you realize in the moment they're ones that people bring to your attention And I think that the first thing you have to do when you have that experience, you need to acknowledge your own shame around that. And you may not necessarily acknowledge that to the person that you've microaggressed, but you have to acknowledge that to yourself. So then that way you become humble enough to offer a genuine apology, if appropriate, if open to receptive. There's a whole lot of processing that has to go in there as well. But you have to do that emotional labor, I think, of humbling yourself and acknowledging that it doesn't matter whether or not I intended to do so, I apologize for harming you. And, you know, whether or not a person is open to having a conversation about that, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And then also after you acknowledge your shame, after you express your apology, then go do some homework. Figure out what it is to do better and don't ask the person that you've microaggressed to then become your teacher to do that kind of work for you. 
that's kind of been a guiding light for me. I don't know if it's the right way, but that's just kind of the way that I've come to think about that. Because I think sometimes when the rush into the apology, and I'm really, really sorry, is sometimes about you needing that person to forgive you rather than you expressing an acknowledgement of that hurt that you have inflicted on someone else. And so this is what I mean when I say about acknowledging shame. When I have been on the receiving end of a microaggression, honestly, my reaction depends on the day of the week, depends on my mood, depends on my state of mind. I think that I have a pretty acerbic wit and sometimes I can be a real smart ass and I can be combative. They say two wrongs don't make a right, but sometimes the short feels good in that moment to clap back on someone. On the other hand, depending on my mood, it's just sitting with that and receiving that and then thinking about whether or not I want to spend the emotional energy to even have a conversation with someone about it. And then sometimes there are experiences that you don't get to circle back. It's someone shouting out of a car at you and saying something really horrible and you don't get to do anything with it except experience it. And then hopefully find yourself in a community of folks who can just kind of hear you and receive that and share that hurt with you in some way. So I think it just depends in terms of how I react when I experience microaggressions. Yeah, I actually concur with everything that Dr. Bowles said. The shame part, the introspection, that kind of embarrassment that I feel for myself when someone points out or I realize the second something leaves my mouth that I had said something that I should not have definitely is a very humbling experience. So yeah, I would say shame is a very apt word and it definitely makes me cognizant that just because I am a person of color it does not exempt me from being the microaggressor of other identities, whether it is gender or ableism or sexuality. It is definitely a process realizing that I had a set of, I wouldn't say even just implicit biases, just stereotypes and just kind of a lot of ignorant assumptions I think the homework part is really, really essential. So there's definitely a lot of work that goes on even after an apology may have been made directly. And I think being vulnerable and being honest about the vulnerability, I don't see shame in that. Being on the receiving end of a microaggression, usually my style of response is to sit on it and I usually do it in writing and I'll send out an email and I might draft it and then I'll send it maybe the following day when I have pretty much like zero emotion. But generally what I'll do is I will send it out to not just the one person who is the aggressor, but to other people who were within earshot or other people who were privy to that particular incident. But I usually do respond. And if I'm unable to, it does help a lot to turn to a colleague like Dr. Bowles and say, you know, this, this, this just happened, get that instant validation, and then it's out of my mind. Great. Thank you both for that. And I really like what you both have said about, especially like doing your homework. I think it's something we've talked a lot about is using like guilt or shame as almost like a protective emotion and taking the responsibility to then recognize what you've done and 
what that kind of says about what your views are and how you need to change those by educating yourself. For this next question, if you both want to talk about with your years at Davidson, what you have seen change that, you know, like positive change, but then also what you would like to see further change. I'll start with um, changes that I have seen in the last 17 years in terms of visible diversity, tremendous amount of change for the better. So there was absolutely little to no diversity in 2002, both in the student body and also the faculty. What we see now on our campus, in the classroom, in the dorms, at the student union, that is just a huge, huge improvement from what it was in 2002. And I don't even want to think about what it must have been like, you know, like in the 90s or 80s. I probably would not have made it. I definitely would have left. Having said that, even when there was not much visible diversity on the entire campus, the anthropology department always had that kind of visible diversity that is really, really essential, important for me. I'm happy to see just ever-increasing diversity in the student body, not just racially, but also religions and also socioeconomic backgrounds and different kinds of skill sets and abilities. Faculty diversity definitely has gotten better. I know that it's different efforts needed to diversify faculty as well as administration. We do have some but in Davidson's classic fashion, things are definitely a lot slower than I would like. In terms of thinking about changes that I've seen at Davidson, I've now been here for, what, seven years? And for me, and I guess I'm coming at a very particular moment in time where the diversity of the student body, to me, has been pretty steady. And I think that it's actually difficult for me to even answer that question about changes in diversity because I think I have an unusual experience at Davidson or what I realize now is an unusual experience at Davidson or an unusual experience in our department. The anthropology department in terms of our student body is very diverse. The anthropology department in terms of our faculty is very diverse. The anthropology department in terms of our classes and who attends our classes is very diverse. And so I'm not, I don't even know if I, I'm a very good person to ask that question, but I definitely have seen a lot more what I think of as front-facing conversations around diversity and inclusion that have changed and shifted since I first arrived at Davidson. And this is where I'm going to give a shout out to Dr. Cho, I think on the faculty side for being one of the early organizers for the Faculty of Color Caucus, which is a great space for a faculty of color to spend time together, talk about experiences, coalition together in terms of thinking about the experiences for people of color on campus. I think that in that space, you realize that so many of those faculty are attached to student organizations or are involved in student groups who are being productively agitative about institutional inclusivity. So like the number part doesn't really matter to me as much. So like, okay, the diversity numbers have gone up, but I do think that in some ways I've seen some incremental shifts, you know, but like my great grandma might say, sometimes one step forward and two steps back. 
in terms of what inclusivity looks like and feels like on our campus and even the increase in language around inclusivity rather than just diversity. So that's a change that I think that has been positive, that it's not just about there being more bodies on campus, that how do those bodies feel as they move through campus and do they feel a sense of productive entitlement to the space in that way. So I've seen that change. But then conversely, as a person who's recently tenured in the last two years, I definitely feel like my experience as a pre-tenure faculty around diversity and inclusion is very different than my experience around diversity and inclusion as a tenure faculty member. So, you know, hashtag Davidson's so white when you start talking about tenured faculty or people, administrators who are in positions of influence. So it just really depends. So even though it's a very small school, the microcultures within that will lead you to answer that question very, very differently, of course. I mean, in all things, that's not unusual. But I think that the conversation around inclusivity has become broadened and more widespread than it was when I first arrived at Davidson. Yeah, and I would say the changes are more evident with the student body. With the faculty side, we kind of have to look at the visiting faculty, the contingent faculty, that oftentimes it is the visiting faculty who are the ones that are racially, ethnically diverse and also offer courses that diversify the entire curriculum, but it's just kind of on a very limited basis, like a semester to what, maximum two years, three years So the change is definitely pretty remarkable considering there was none of that, none of that language ever used in 2002. It's also, I think at this point where I am also seeing the co-opting of diversity and inclusion. And I'll just give you one specific Example. So inclusivity for people who are doing anti-racist work refers to something particular. And I think the way it has been co-opted on our campus, I don't know about other campuses, it includes things like things that I would never consider part of inclusivity, like having a flipped classroom or the use of clickers. That, to me, does not fall under the umbrella of inclusivity. In a way, because words like diversity and inclusion are used a lot, and we see it in all sorts of different constituents across campus, I wonder, and I'm also just looking out for ways in which these changes are being co-opted. Great, thank you. And now if you want to go into what you would like to see change on campus, and then also what recommendations you have for our listeners that might push that change. So whether that be administration, other professors or students who are listening, if you want to plug any of your classes or any readings that you might have. Recommendations that I have for our Davidson community is to look beyond your individual narrative, look beyond your individual experience. And I'm not going to go with the platitude of like, oh, imagine yourself walking a mile in someone else's shoes. But when people speak, validate and value their experience. When people tell you their experiences, believe them. And I don't mean that just about like marginalized groups, right? So if someone tells you, I don't, I think that things are so much better, believe them. If someone tells you, I think that racism is on the decline, believe them. Because I think that also lets you know exactly who your allies and accomplices are and who are the people that you need to 
stand in tension with. And the other thing that I would like to see is whether or not we could maintain the Davidson community and have conversations that really get real. You know, where we acknowledge people's pain, where we acknowledge people's struggles, and we have a collective intolerance for simply thinking of tolerance alone. We do a lot to tolerate each other, but how do we move from tolerance to acceptance and inclusion and affirmation of the diversity of beings that exist in our campus? I think the first thing we need to do is have those kinds of frank conversations rather than just be like really good students or be really good faculty and thinking that it's about being a good person. You can't just be not racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And one of the ways I think that you can do that, like I was talking about earlier, about doing your work. So there are the classics. But if you really want to understand those structures, let's say intergenerationally, then it's a text written by a historian, which is stamped from the beginning, which is a definitive history of racist ideas by Kendi. You know, that's a really great text. People talk about Davidson as a bubble, but I do think it's a bubble that in many ways is a micro context of the society that we're living in, in various parts of it. And so there's work to be done reading, like whether it's Angela Davis, whether it's reading, you know, Grace Lee Boggs. There's just so much out there. We always have really fantastic speakers who come to our campus who tell us the work that needs to happen. So people need to just start doing that work. And I don't mean doing that work by going out and being a part of a direct social action. That may be your work, but your work can also be in your community. Your work can also be in your household. You know, your work can also be with, you know, how people vote and who they vote for and who they vote against in their decision-making processes. So all of those things, I think, are really important, even though people think that they have to be big in order for them to make some type of change. But I think starting with one's own community will actually give people way more traction than just thinking about going out and being a part of helping or maybe not helping another community. One thing that I would like to see a change in would be our shift away from collegiality above everything else. And what I mean by that is when we see something is wrong or something is unjust, the tendency on our Davidson culture would be to choose collegiality and maintaining rapport with one another over calling out or addressing something that really needs to be addressed. That's actually one thing that I would like to see changed is just to be a bit more humble, but at the same time, maybe be a little bit bolder too, instead of just kind of hiding behind silence and also this culture of collegiality. Yeah, I think that's something we focused on a lot this past year. Like I mentioned before, the incident that happened with the Halloween party and the lacrosse team, how someone was bold enough to call out in the microaggressions group, we say we call out to call in, to bring the attention to this issue that we find wrong and using that boldness because we need to practice what we preach. So being bold and not staying silent, I definitely think that's something that Davidson needs to work on in the student body as well. So is there anything else you guys want to add? Anything else you guys would like to talk about? I don't have anything that I necessarily want to like be in discussion about, but I do want to 
affirm that I think this is a really incredibly important kind of work that the Davidson Microaggression Project does. Partly because sometimes like, those of us who are deeply embedded in these experiences sometimes feel like visibility is, is passe. But I do think that it can become an introductory space for people to even begin to cultivate their kind of linguistic fluency to even be able to have conversations and to creep beyond the various silences that they hide behind. And also to, I don't know, it's like something that can be learned from that kind of interaction. And even if they take that with them into their own individual safe space and have that conversation, it can still be fruitfully productive. Because you have to have multiple on-ramps and off-ramps into a conversation. And I think that this platform does a really great job of balancing between or a conversation between, well, these are the people who already know everything that's going on. And these are the people who know nothing about what's going on. I think it does a really nice job of moving in between those spaces rather than in, in one range or the other, because it creates a place for lots of people to enter into a conversation. So I just wanna encourage you all to keep doing that work. It's really important on our campus and in the broader social context. And so I just wanted to give you all a quick shout out. I guess a little a question that kind of popped up a little bit more about your guys' experiences. Where were you guys studying at your respective institutions? Well, did you guys experience microaggressions? And I guess how could you compare kind of like the way the institutions kind of respond to it? I know the times are different and conversations have shifted. So when I was an undergrad and graduate student in the Midwest, so that would have been, let's see, college. I started in 1990, graduated in 94, and then from 94 to 2002, I was in graduate school. So all of that, 12 years in the Midwest, I was blissfully ignorant about race and definitely racism. And that's because I did not grow up in this country and I did not know really what race was. It just didn't make any sense. So I say blissfully ignorant because if I know what I know now, back then, I don't think I would have made it. So the kinds of memories that I have, I would say just lots and lots and lots of microaggressions and definitely lots and lots and lots of overt racism. So yeah, I'm glad that I was as ignorant as I was back then. But yeah, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance that I went through at Davidson and in North Carolina. I tell usually my debunking race class, it is at Davidson College and in North Carolina where I became Asian. And I know that doesn't make sense because I clearly look Asian, but my identity was always international student here in the U.S. in an F-1 visa. I have a Korean passport, but I was born and raised in Latin America. So a third culture kid. So yeah, that was kind of an experience that I think led to very, very, very slow self-education about race and racism. But like what Dr. Bowles said earlier, just the onus is on individuals really to educate ourselves, especially those of us who are in 
academic institutions, whether students or faculty, we do need to educate ourselves. And it's definitely not a fun process, but that's really the only way we can really get something as important as how racism is maintained, reproduced, perpetuated, inflicted. I just thought about Alice Walker, who, following in the spirit of so many elders before her, said the more things change, the more they stay the same. And what I mean by that, like as an undergraduate student, you know, journalism, in a sense, Africana major, and talking about things that have happened. There was a racist school shooting on my campus as an undergrad, and the administrative response to that was piss poor. And very much, well, if you don't like it here, you should go someplace else, transfer someplace else. I don't think that would happen at an institution like Davidson in that same way, in terms of an explicit nature. But I do think that there's social pressure around that. I think that that happens for lots of our students. Like no one says, well, and sometimes they do say love it or leave it, but it doesn't, it doesn't function in that way. But I think it does function that way at lots of other campuses, you know, and I'm not trying to go with the whole Davidson exceptionalism, but I am fascinated by how much sway social decorum has on behavior at Davidson. So it doesn't have to be explicit. You know, things don't have to be plainly stated. People don't have to tell you to get out, go home, go back to where you came from. But the atmosphere can certainly make you feel that way. And so I don't necessarily know if I think that, I don't know if they're different better, different worse since I was an undergrad, you know, 20 plus years ago. They're just different. You know, I think the contours are different. Definitely experiences of microaggression. I don't think that I would have survived my PhD program if I was not schooling in my home city and had the love and support of my family to help me get through graduate school because graduate school was an incredibly traumatic and oppressive experience for me. So in, around issues of you know race, class, gender, sexual orientation, politics, etc. I don't, I don't have a better answer for you, but that's just kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of times change in terms of my own various modes of schooling. Just different. I do have one other question. I guess I've been kind of thinking, this is kind of your point about um, like doing the homework and educating yourself. I came from like a pretty small public high school where like conversations like this were just never had through one or two really good teachers I had that introduced me to, you know, conversations about like race disparities and sexism and all. But now coming to Davidson and especially feeling like I have access to so much more information, especially just like with online journals and stuff and knowing like that's a really good resource for education, but almost it being like overwhelming. And then like on top of that, like, you know, you're already like in classes and stuff. I was wondering if you guys have any input or ideas on how to like really use the resources at Davidson to grow. You can bring the horse to water, but. (laughs) you know, can't make it drink the water. I don't have an answer for that, unfortunately. The resources are there at our fingertips. And the individual has to somehow feel compelled to go use that. So yeah, there are incredible resources out there, not just at Davidson, but beyond. I was going to say that I think it speaks to a larger issue. And I mean, I'm not trying to go like into all platitudes, like, okay, the resources are there. But I also think that there are lots of people, students, faculty, and staff 
who come to Davidson because someone told them that Davidson was a good school or they read that Davidson was a good school. But even though people think that Davidson is a good school, some people do not lean in and actually trust the education process. And what I mean by that is that it's a liberal arts institution, but I don't believe that, you know, like the popularity of certain majors is definitely like, okay, I'm coming to a liberal arts institution, but I don't trust the process that if I take courses widely across this institution, then I'm going to come out with the things I need in order to get a job. And so because they don't trust that process, that's why they don't use those resources. So if you're pre-med, this is not a diss. Please hear me when I say this. Once you get into a very finite kind of tracking system about thinking about your postgraduate plans, it can be hard to trust the intellectual growth process that a liberal arts environment offers you and believe that you can tap into the, well, I I would want to take that class, but that class is not going to help me take the next step. So it's almost like building the belief system around the holism of a liberal arts experience, but even doing that can be treacherous because, you know, you may take this broad stroke of classes, but it may not give you everything that you need in terms of what we're talking about here today. So it's a both and kind of thing. So the resources are there. I think people have to feel, again, faculty, staff, and students have to feel empowered for them to have some tangible value in their lives and in their community in order for them to take that step. So like Dr. Cho, I kind of believe that like it's there. You got to want it and you got to believe that it has some utility for you. It's not a popular opinion. You can't always teach people out of ignorance, you know, because it's not just about ignorance. It's about the, I think the privilege that that ignorance affords people disproportionately. And so big privilege and big ignorance, what encourages a person to divest? from either because divesting from their ignorance also means they might have to divest from some privileges and lots of people don't want to do that. You know, maybe I'm pessimistic and it may be the day that we're talking and maybe again what's going on in the world, but I do think that people have to build their own capacity for understanding that it matters. And I actually might respect the person a bit more if they were really honest with themselves and the rest of us and said, I don't really care. So again, that's how you know who are the people that you're going to exist in tension with and who are the people that you're going to build a new something with. Yeah, I do think there needs to be, for an individual, some kind of impetus that leads them to a particular set of resources, you know, whether it's literature, whether it is individuals who happen to have that expertise on campus. It has to be some kind of impetus. I think Dr. Bull said it so much better. That emotion called shame. Oh, wow. It is just a soul-rattling, really, really powerful emotion. So, yeah, I do feel that it does need to be at an individual level and something powerful enough to move that person to seek out the resources. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DMP podcast. Check out our website at www.davidsonmicroaggressionsproject.org and follow us on social media. Find us on Instagram at dcmicroaggressions, on Twitter at dmp underscore davidson, and follow our Facebook page, Davidson Microaggressions Project.